Good morning. My name is Garrett. Uh, I moved here about nine months ago, where we started going here nine months ago with my wife, Shay. Um, and it's just been such a blessing to be a part of this community and to uh, experience all that God's doing here. Um, how many of you love to get out in the wilderness? You can raise your hands. <laughs> all right, now that you've all been identified, who thinks that all of those people are crazy? All right, we got one. Put your hand down. <laughs> I am one of those people. There's something about getting out into the woods 20, 30 miles out where cell phones can't reach, where email can't find me. There's something so invigorating about climbing a mountain and feeling that ache in your legs as you sit around a campfire looking out over miles of forest under open stars. <laughs> Got some amens in the back. For me, it's really easy in that place to understand the way that the ancients would have looked at God and understood God. You can go ahead and put up the first slide. This is a ziggurat. It's kind of a fun word, right? A ziggurat is sort of an ancient uh, temple. It was sort of a generic name for uh, the style of temple that many of the people in Mesopotamia would have shared. Many of the biblical and especially the Old Testament struggles can be understood through a deeper look into the context and the logic of the ziggurat. The idea was that you could get closer to God by literally going up. So we can look at the story of the Tower of Babel where the people built this tower in order to get to the heavens. We can look at Moses who's often depicted climbing mountains and praying at the top, speaking with God. We can look at Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods are supposed, or where they said the Greek gods lived. There's a majesty and wonder found in the ability to look out over something while shortening your proximity to God. God was up there. And you can do the next slide now. This is the temple of Artemis. This is what would have towered over the city of Ephesus, which is where we're going to be reading about this morning. This temple would have employed the work of hundreds of people to conduct the worship uh, in the cult of Artemis. The very same ideas of the divine being up in the sky, up on top of the hill, would have been alive and well in the community and the culture of Ephesus. Turn with this, me this morning uh, to Ephesians 1. If you have your Bibles, it will be on the screen. If not, we're going to pick up uh, in the epistle of Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. This epistle is such an amazing look into the wisdom of somebody who was once at the very top of his culture and now finds himself in the lowest place, writing from prison, potentially awaiting his death. Let's pray this morning before we get into the word. Jesus, we need your help this morning. We need you to teach us what it looks like to love with your heart. We need you to teach us what it looks like to see the world through your eyes. Lord, would you teach us to engage, to hear your voice, to be guided by you. In Jesus' name. Again, we're going to be reading in Ephesians 1, and we're going to start at verse 3. Praise be to God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing 
in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, and according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. That will was to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, and according to the plan of him who works out everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. How many of you know that we all have ideas about how God works? We all have these assumptions about the way that God might speak to us. And many of those things are not rooted in Scripture, but they're actually more rooted in our cultural philosophy and understanding of the way God works. So when we come to the kingdom of God, when we come to faith, it's really hard to transition from the mindset of the culture we were raised into to the culture of the kingdom. It's like we're going through a spiritual culture shock. Psychologists have identified four main phases of culture shock. The first phase is what they call the honeymoon phase. During this period, people are often infatuated with the city that they're visiting or the country that they're visiting. They become really excited about the food and the culture, and it's, it's sort of like this touristy phase. If you can move beyond that phase, if you stay in a place for one to three months, typically, you'll start to experience what they call frustration. During this period, you'll start to have a fatigue from trying to understand the nuances of language and the gestures of that community. And it's really common during this period for people to start to feel homesick or to want to leave. And oftentimes, if somebody's moved somewhere, this is the hardest phase to push past. The next stage is the stage of adjustment. During this time, you start to feel more comfortable in your new environment. You start to feel excited and about being able to understand these new ideas. You start to feel at home and like you could get around if you needed to. And then finally, there's this stage called acceptance. During this period of time, people will move from that adjustment to a place where they don't feel like they have to know everything about the culture, but they feel like they can still get around. They, they realize that they can be a participant in this culture without, and they have the tools now to learn how to get around and how to understand things. For many of us in our faith, we live somewhere between stages one and two, between the honeymoon stage and frustration, where we're actually more of cultural tourists in the kingdom 
than we are people who are accepting and becoming a part of that kingdom. So many of us hold on to our own cultural perspectives of money and of business and of relationship. And so when we come into the kingdom, it's really hard to pick through and to try and identify what things are values that we were raised with and what things are values of this new kingdom and culture that we're trying to adapt to. Ask yourself this morning, how can I begin adjusting my expectations so the kingdom can start to become my culture? I recently learned a a good way to do this. I was listening to a podcast, and uh, the guy that was talking asked this question. He said, if you're listening to something or experiencing something and it causes a rise of emotion inside of you, that's a good place to start to ask, is this a value I was raised on or that's being interrupted or agreed with, or is this a value uh, that I need to grow into? I think oftentimes when we're listening to uh, politicians speak or reading an article on Facebook, we have this rise in emotion and this question that comes up of, like, why am I angry because I'm reading this, or why am I so encouraged by this? And I think a lot of times in that place, we start, that's a good spot to start to ask, is this kingdom value or is this, this my value? One of the things that the church in Ephesus struggled with was the idea that God was up there. And I think we still struggle with this on some level, this distant God who's far from us. And Paul chooses to engage this right away. He says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Paul, from the beginning of this book, starts to paint a picture of a God that's not far from us, that is, but that is close to us. A.W. Tozer says that God is closer to us than he is to our own skin. Look at the image of blessing all throughout Scripture. It's always paired with a touch. We look at Jacob and Esau who received a touch from Isaac as they got their inheritance blessing. We look at David who received his anointing with oil on his head. We look at Moses who climbed the mountain and brought down the Ten Commandments, the Word of God to saturate the lives of his people. All of this was a divine prophecy leading to Jesus who brought heaven to earth and came down. He is often described eating with the sinners and eating with the outcasts, these people um, that society looked past, because God's heart was not to be a God up on the ziggurat. If it was, maybe he would have just had the Israelites take over Egypt or uh, take over the temples of Mesopotamia and replace those places with his worship. But God had one thing in mind, that blessing comes with a touch. It's tactile and it's real. And in light of this, Paul continues. For he chose us, all of us, in him before the creation of the world to be blameless and holy in his sight. What does it mean to be holy? Last week we opened the discussion of our faith in the Christian journey. and We talked about how our faith inevitably leads us to this place of discontentment. To this place where we start to observe the world around us and the the chaos and the atrocities, and then we start to compare it to our Christian faith, and we look at how like these terrible things are happening, and over here we go to our small group and our church, and we can't quite seem to make sense of it. And we start to ask, is there more to this? There's a hunger inside of us that begins to rise. 
Much of our culture is built on this idea that a good life is an easy life, that if we work long enough and work hard enough, we might just catch a few good years at the end. So we obsess over finances and we stockpile money. We withhold tips from waiters and baristas. Full disclosure, I was a barista. (laughs) So when we approach the discontentment found in our faith, we either walk away because it's too hard, because we'd have to let go of our worries, or we choose to go deeper. Holiness is the journey of dying to ourselves to create room for the resurrection of the image of God in our lives. It's a replacement of the old mindset with the new. It's a healing of our broken souls to be able to taste the fullness of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. How many of us have been in a place where our assumption about uh, people that are marked by God is that they read their Bible more, or they go to more small groups, or they engage in more church activities? When I look at the characteristics of somebody marked by God, it's not those things, but it's actually um, a marking that requires adjectives that can only be expressed in the context of relationship. You become patient because God is often late as far as we're concerned. You become kind because the kindness of Christ rubs off. You become peaceful through years of intimate interactions with the Holy Spirit that build trust. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life requires adjectives that can only be expressed in the context of relationship. So very quickly we're beginning to see that the biblical ideas of holiness require a journey, not to the highest ascent of the ziggurat or the mountain or the temple, but down to the ground. When we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we grow in our relationships with our neighbors. Have you ever been up on a tall building and it's kind of a, a... ridiculous expression, but people look like ants on the ground. I wonder if some of us live our lives looking at the lives of our neighbors who seem so distant to us that their problems kind of feel like ants to us. They seem insignificant, and so we continue to go on with our activities of our life, our small groups, without ever engaging our neighbor. About nine months ago, Shay and I moved down here to Durham, Uh, and it was a really exciting time. We were going through that uh, cultural stage of infatuation. We loved our city. We loved the coffee shops we were finding. We loved the people we were meeting, and so we started applying for jobs, and I was applying for two to four jobs a day for four months with no, like, three interviews and no callbacks beyond that, and life around month four, hit this spot where it was really mundane. I was drinking from the same coffee cup every day. I was sitting in the same chair and reading for two or three hours a day, going to the same parks in the afternoon just to try and keep my sanity. And as I did this, I began to realize things about the world. I began to feel anxiety and agony over the atrocities of war in Syria young African-American men being shot innocently. There was a rise in political hatred 
a 25% increase in the foster care system, and I was overwhelmed. I didn't want to face these problems, though. Uh, I'm guilty of being a Midwesterner, and if you know anything about people from the Midwest, we don't like to face our problems. (laughs) It's no different in my faith. When life forced me, though, to stop long enough to actually observe the world around me, I came to a place where I either had to choose to engage or to disengage and to, to hide myself away. This descent from the ziggurat of comfort wasn't going to be easy. It was going to require me to get my hands dirty. And it was a challenge that would take me a lifetime to engage. During this time, Matt would tell me this phrase all the time. It seemed like a million times. Um, But you would say, in order to go up in the kingdom, you have to go down. In order to go up in the kingdom, you have to first go down. In Jesus' descent, he doesn't only reach out to touch us, but he calls us family. He takes it a step farther. Now, for some of us, this statement is emotionally confusing. We have a lot of baggage that's tied up in family. I want to be sensitive to that, but this morning, I want to challenge you to consider that God's calling you to a new mindset of family, that he wants to reteach you and reshape your perspective of family to look like the kingdom of God. Paul says that God has wanted us long before we ever were, that there's royalty woven into your soul. And this process to understand this logic is going to feel unnatural. It's going to feel illogical. But it's real. Intentionally leaving the comfort of what you know and what you grew up with is going to require self-denial and discipline. This is a major theme In the season of Lent, the church takes this time to remind ourselves and to align ourselves with the uh, journey of Jesus to the cross. This journey of reorienting our idea of how change happens in the world. The story of Jesus is written with people that constantly are trying to change and trying to put him into a place of power. The way that they understand change happens in the world. But Jesus teaches that change doesn't happen on the ground, or on the mountaintop, change happens on the ground. This idea is so beautifully illustrated in the story of the transfiguration. During this story, Jesus and some of the disciples climb a mountain to find this sort of spiritual um, image of Elijah and Moses on top of the mountain. And Peter looks at this, and he's just like stoked. He's like, these are the people I've heard stories about my ent- entire life, and Uh, why don't we just build a tent and stay up here forever? Um, But as soon as he utters this, Jesus uh, kind of snaps out of it and they disappear. I think there's something in this, that Jesus knew that the mission and the calling that he had was not on the mountaintop with these people that have been uh, magnified, but it was on the ground in the cities with the people in the dirt. It's through the humility of standing in and with the injustices of the world that we understand the redemption of the kingdom. It's a hard calling, but if we want to see the kingdom come, if we want to see change, if we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we can't afford to stay up on the mountain. Finally, Paul says we're marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit 
That's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. The reality is we can't leave the mountaintop on our own. Our human sin and our instinct leads us to look up, to climb, to ascend, to earn our place in the heavens. The journey down is not a journey of separation from God, but it's a journey that leads us into increasing intimacy with the Holy Spirit. It's a journey that unlocks and affirms all of our humanity. It's a journey that teaches us to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. The ancient Ephesians would have seen their community pursuing God through the ascent of religiosity. And I wonder if some of us don't often try to pursue God and pursue his heart through this ascent. We look for validation in church activities and raising our hands in worship and reading our Bible more. These are not bad things. They're amazing things. But I think God's plan was not that we look to affirm ourselves in that because his plan was to adopt us long before we ever had those ideas. As you stand, you're a glaring reflection of the image of God. Maybe for you right now, life seems mundane. And I want to say that maybe in this time that feels mundane, God is actually giving you the space to see the world through his eyes. Maybe your life has become so busy that you no longer observe what he sees, that you're no longer burdened by what he's burdened for. But he wants you to know that it's in the burdens of Jesus that we meet him face to face. It's in the burdens of Jesus that we learn and we start to take on the heart and the image and the calling of the kingdom of God. It's in the burdens of Jesus that you realize the trappings of the mountaintop are just that, they're trappings. They're jail doors keeping you from experiencing the change and the growth that he's calling you to. When you go deep enough to realize that you're royalty in the kingdom of God, you start to find that the things that once caused discontentment in your heart, start, you start to identify with those things. It starts to be like, if you're a part of a big family like I am, there's these things that you do and you're like, well, that's just what I do because I'm a Lange Bartles. That's my last name. <laughs> but I think when we join the kingdom of God and when we become a part of this identity, we start to realize that taking care of the people around us who are struggling we start are, is a part of what we do. It's just what we do. We start to engage the marginalized because that's where we feel alive. That's where we feel at home. And there's this joy that starts to rise up when you see people go from prostitute to pure, from addicted to freedom bearer, from refugee to king, from pastor or from peasant to pastor. This is a journey that requires the voice of the Holy Spirit, our community, and quiet reflection. For Lent, many of us have committed to give something up in order to uh, remind us of this hunger for Jesus that we have. During those times this week, uh, I want to have you try to process a few of these questions. So if you have something to write with, you can write them down. You can reflect on them now. Ask yourself, is there something in my life that's consuming my focus? So often we choose to focus on 
things that we're worried about. We choose to focus on our work and um, kind of building this life for ourselves. But I think a lot of times those things take away from Jesus' heart for us. The next question. What do I need to cut out to create space to hear the heart of Jesus? Who in my community can help me see the heart of Jesus? Here's a hint. It's probably the person that you would least expect. And last, how can I come alongside that person in this season? People we might encounter on this journey would be people experiencing refugee status. They would be orphans and widows, the people that Jesus has often talked about hanging out with. When we get to know the heart of Jesus, we learn to serve the people for which his heart beat. The kingdom is not up there. It's not on the mountain. It's not at the ascent of our career where we have enough money to pay for people and to take care of the world as we think it should be done. The ascent of the kingdom of God is on the ground. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, it's a hard journey down. It's not easy. Sometimes it's painful. But we need you this morning. Jesus, would you teach us what it look like, looks like to love our neighbor? Would you teach us how to find those people who need you most? And would you teach us about yourself as we look into their eyes, as we bear their burdens? Jesus, we love you. We long for your presence in our lives. Would you teach us what it looks like to find that presence every day? In Jesus' name, amen.